0: This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta and you're listening to Working Drummer Podcast. Today I'm talking with Jason J.T. Thomas, who is currently touring with Snarky Puppy and Fork. He's in high demand as a drummer, producer, singer, and writer, both live and in the studio. And his resume also includes Philip Phillips, CeCe Winans, Fred Hammond, Roy Hargrove, and many others. He's frequently touring internationally, but maintains an active presence in his hometown of Dallas, where he plays with the Daystar Christian TV network and various corporate groups when not on the road. As promised, we have added to our Patreon content. Our latest installment is a video lesson from Rob Mount on getting creative with sextuplets. If you want to help support Working Drummer Podcast, a donation of as little as $1 a month gets you access to this exclusive educational content. Tons of really useful tips, tricks, and lessons in there from former guests, and there will be more coming soon. So go to patreon.com slash working drummer and become a patron to help us keep going strong. You can get in touch with us at WorkingDrummer.net or on Facebook and Instagram. We always appreciate hearing from you. Share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer and we'll be featuring those in our stories. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube and leave us a rating and review on those platforms. This really helps new listeners find us. So J.T. is about as friendly a dude as you'd ever want to meet. His playing is full of uh, some really high-flying energy, but as you'll hear, his mentality and musical approach are very down-to-earth. It was also great to hear his reflections on the recently deceased Roy Hargrove, with whom J.T. played for 20 years and counted as a close friend. So let's get to it with J.T. Thomas. So you've been in, you've been in town for a minute? You've been there in Dallas?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've been home since July. I went out for a couple of weeks in August, but now I'm back here.
0: And and it was with Fork that you went out, right? Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Um, so that band has been going for, what, three years? Officially, I guess since um,
1: since 2014 when we got back together, but we initially started back in 2010. Got it. Okay. It just took us three years to come back together and actually decide to record a record, Got for the it. first record. Right on. But right once on. we we did the first record in January, like January, like the third week of January in 2014, and we've been going ever since.
0: Cool, cool. So that band is uh, you, and it's it's kind of led by Henry Hay, right? The keyboardist. Uh, not so much led by him. He does a lot of the lead work,
1: logistical stuff that we deal with with uh just bookings and all that kind of stuff he kind of runs over that
0: right but band wise it's always been equal four parts cool cool it reminds me um in that regard a lot of of henry's uh previous band rudder yeah Rudder. um exact yes almost the exact same model yeah yeah which by the way for for keith carlock fans like myself There, there's just no finer (laughs) vehicle for Keith than than that that band Rudder. So if you haven't checked out everybody out there, make sure and check out Rudder. So, like, did those two bands kind of overlap? They didn't overlap, but that's how they formed. When me and Mike, uh, back
1: in like 2009, 2010, me and Mike was always we were doing trios. We've been doing trios together for a long time. Prior to when they moved to New York, when Mike did, we we did trio stuff for years, me, him, and Bernard Wright on our keyboards here in Dallas. Right
2: on.
1: And then when he moved to New York, just to try to drum up some more work and try to make some money in between the snarky runs, because they were still in that process of just going out and making negative money. Right. (laughs) So we had talked about doing a smaller band and me coming up to New York. And playing a couple of times a month with him and whoever, or even we'd actually thought about bringing Bobby up at one time, Bobby Sparks as well, mm-hmm. and then maybe doing some stuff with guys there. Justin was there already, so we like maybe me him and Justin could do a trio, some just something to do in between, uh, in between snarky stuff, and then him and Mike, Mike and Henry had also talked about doing a group together and playing together because Rudder was pretty much disbanding at that point, right. Right. So it was kind of like Henry still wanted to do some playing and do some more stuff. But that band was just pretty much becoming impossible to guys were starting to sub out. And it was kind of with that band that was kind of one of those bands where if all the key members weren't there, it just really wasn't Rudder. Yeah, it was just I was going to say,
0: if, if one of those guys is missing, it's not Rudder. Right. <laughs>
1: So he was like, yeah, if it's going to turn into that, I'd rather just kind of just let it let it fall. Right. So they started talking about doing a group. And that's when we did the first initial two gigs that we ever did uh, before we even had a name in 2010. We did two uh, like random gigs at 55 Bar, mm-hmm. literally just to get together and play and see what would happen. Right. Right. And it was me. It was that was the original group. That was me, Mike, Henry and Adam Rogers.
0: Cool. Okay, man. How many once, how many projects? How many amazing things have come out of like a random gig at the Fifty Five Bar? <laughs> oh yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. So it was like yeah, and when we did it then, we had a, a ton of fun, uh, so much fun that when we did the first gig, Henry was like, "Let's just do that one more time." You guys want to come back up next week? And I, he flew me back out on some miles like the, a week later or two weeks later, and we played it again, and then nothing. Right. For like three years because everybody was just so busy. He was still doing all the MD stuff that he was doing for, God, at that at that point, he was still doing, I think, stuff with Rod Stewart and all these other big A-list pop guys that right. he was kind of the go-to guy for. It. And then that's kind of when around 2010, 2011, Snarky started picking up a whole lot more at that point, started mm-hmm. working as much as they could. I was still out with R.H. Factor a lot during that time, kind of in and out with them. Right. And then Adam was, good Lord, Adam had two or three band of his, bands of his own and then still playing with Chris Potter and countless session stuff in New York. So it was just, we did those two shows and we were like, okay, what are we going to do after that? And we just kind of sat dormant for like three years and like always kind of joked and talked about those. You oh, know, yeah, that was fun. And that was about it. right. right. And then... 2013, like November or October, Henry just sends out this random email to everybody. Basically, like like a bad scene out of Blues Brothers. Just, <laughs> let's let's put the man back together again. Let's do that again. Yeah. We was like, do what again? Right, right. He was like, we, we should play again. We were like, uh, you talking about the stuff that we did like three years ago? It's <laughs> like, yeah. Let, let's get together and play the Fifty Four Bar again. We were like, uh oh, okay, sure, okay. So, did it again and wouldn't play the 55 bar and then henry was like we should record this record yeah we should record these songs and see what happens right let's 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 do this yeah and i was like well you picked a fine time because i just pretty much took the full-time gig with philip phillips <laughs> and i and i start in january like i was doing his second record in january thankfully we were in new york doing that record because we did The first Fort record we did immediately after I did Phillips record. Well, no, we went and did the first record in Boston and it was a freak snowstorm that hit the East Coast that year. (laughs) It was just outlandishly ridiculous with all the snow and how cold it was. And I ended up doing two sessions on the East Coast back to back. Wow. I did Fork's record first. We did it in like three days and then went straight from there, caught a train from Boston, went straight to New York, and did Phillip Phillips' record, second record, and started touring with him then. So I was like, okay, now you want to start this band up, and I'm about to be gone a lot. Right, <laughs> I'm right. like, so when are we going to do this touring, whatever? But somehow, just kind of in all the blank spots, everybody kind of knew what their schedule was, and we just throw random stuff in, the, in between the blank spots and,
0: We've been going ever since. Right, and at what point does uh, Kevin Scott come into the the fold?
1: Kevin came in right around
0: 2014,
1: going into 2015. Mike was pretty much wearing as many hats as he possibly could, and probably wearing hats that he shouldn't have been wearing. Right, he was just he was just saying yes to everything, to production, to writing, to writing and producing, to co-writing to right. still booking stuff with Snarky and being a sideband himself with other projects as mm-hmm. a bass player, guitar player and singer and he, he was just literally spread so thin whatever he had a gap he was booked to do something with somebody yep. and we were like okay yeah that's not gonna work with us so he eventually even said the same thing. He was trying to think at first of maybe just getting a sub, mm-hmm. but we were like, dude, the sub is going to end up being on the gig more than you are. Right. So that's, that's not your sub anymore. Right. <laughs> <So> like, <laughs> let's just go ahead and look at, you know, you got to bow out. We totally get, it. if you got to bow out, then we'll, we'll find somebody else.
2: Right.
0: <clears throat> and it's, it's would, good when it's good when a band can, can kind of like come to that decision organically you know you don't have to sit a guy. Right. you don't have to sit a guy down and be like look you're not making any of these gigs like he realized right. himself he was like yeah you know i'm gone more than i'm here so right we should just you know i think all of us have been in some version of that situation right right uh, right and it's it's hard to know when to let go of something because you know i like speaking just for myself i tend to be it's, you know kind of territorial <laughs> about <Right. laughs> some, some drum chairs and like it's not just about the work it's not about the money it's about like i'm associated with this act i want to be associated exactly. and um, exactly yeah so kevin yeah, so we, we saw we saw that coming so it
1: was it was cool because we yeah. just we just knew for him to be able to do that it, it just really physically would, wouldn't have been possible for him to pull that off right as much right. as we wanted him to do it because it was really that band was really kind of him and henry's you know start to try to want to put that band together so but when we did the third record and he didn't even really have time to write anything for the third record and that was kind of our deal with that band was leaderless band and everybody has to kind of put in their work Mm -hmm. everybody has to write tunes and bring tunes and And go from there Everybody's gotta help Arrange everybody else's tunes It's real interactive In that way As far as a four piece Yeah It's all All four pieces Are very important So when he showed up When we got to the third record And he was like Man I hadn't even had time To write anything For this record We were like uh oh Because we knew At that point I was like Yeah that's the first sign Of He's
0: he's really busy, right? And it's probably going to keep getting busier, right? Right. So I I moved to Atlanta um, at the beginning of 2016, and Kevin Scott, the bassist, was one of the first guys I met here. At, right. At, at that point, he was already starting to kind of like migrate between Atlanta and New York. Um, yep. Going up there, like you were talking about, you did just like flying up there, doing a couple dates, doing a couple sessions, yeah. coming back home. Um, yep. And so I I feel like that's getting more and more common with like people who don't live in New York or Nashville or LA. They live right. some they live somewhere else but they they maintain some kind of presence in right. in one of those cities. How have you managed to kind of balance that over the years?
1: I think it's because of the different projects that I've been involved in especially with R H Factor, we was always a split band. It was always... a Half the band was New York-based and the other half, of the guys, were here in Texas. Mm-hmm. So it was always kind of a base for us to come to New York and either record or do shows there when we would do uh, statewide shows with those bands and then we would go out on tour. Right. So I've always kind of been in and out of New York because of, especially my, my dealings with R H Factor all those years. Because that's... Even though Roy was... You know, born and raised here in Dallas, he pretty much grew up professionally because he moved to New York when he was like 18 or 19 years old. Right. And he had been there his entire life until he passed away. Mm-hmm. So when we started that band, even though that band technically kind of started here in Dallas, uh, when we started it back in like 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. we knew if we recorded that the other half of the band was going to be New York the record label and everything there was based out in New York. So we knew pretty much everything was going to be based from there. And that's, that's where we did the first two records was there. And then usually when we would tour, we would always try to throw in a couple of dates in New York when we yeah. play there before we go
0: out so it's interesting having kind of like an anchor gig in new york or an anchor artist I right. think the the same thing happened with kevin like he got on wayne crance's radar and yes. started doing all those gigs with wayne and that that was yeah. kind of his his biggest and best foot in the door in in new york right. over there um yeah it,
1: it definitely helps and then all the guys from new york i mean uh, from snarky like half the band pretty much once they were in new york i mean in dallas once everybody was kind of free from school and other things, they were just, they had always, a lot of them had always had the idea that let's, let's move to New York. Right. Like some, some of the guys, a lot of the guys stayed here in Texas, um, like three or four of the guys, like Chris McQueen was always, he was from Austin. Mm-hmm. So when he did, was done with school and he was playing around here in Dallas, it was always kind of his thought that he would probably move back to Austin, which he did. And that's where he still lives now. But Lethierry Latiri, stayed here in in texas he never wanted to leave dallas i was still here bobby's still here bernard wright was still here in in texas at that point Mm -hmm. um and i think that was pretty much it i struck you guys in the rest of them they all they all plowed away to new york right so it kind of immediately created this split where okay we're probably going to end up doing gigs here in new york and in dallas right because the band is basically split in half
0: Have you been tempted to uh, relocate to New York permanently? What keeps you in Dallas? Every time I come
1: to New York is what keeps me in Dallas. (laughs) Every time I go to New York and I play there and I stay there for a little while, and that's what brings me back to like, I love being here when I'm playing here or working. Mm -hmm. But man, outside of that. Yeah. It's like to live there. I know would it would just absolutely drive me crazy. Yeah, the day to day. Yeah, that that day to day grind is so intense. Yep. That's like yeah. I just, I there's no way I would be able to to really keep up and just deal with that right every single day. Like the only way that I could think of possibly doing it would be is if I lived in Jersey, which mm-hmm. at that point to. I mean, living in Jersey was cool. I know there's a lot of guys that do a lot of people. Some of the guys in our age factor live in Jersey, mm-hmm. but a lot of them kind of did that. Eventually, if you're just kind of getting in there and want to kind of be on the scene and kind of want to be active, yeah, it's kind of best that you kind of live in one of the boroughs. It's yeah. either Bronx, Bronx, Harlem or Manhattan, wherever you can get in and just hop on the subway and do what you got to do. It's right. usually better, but man, I would stay with Mike and he lived in bed. Uh, yeah. when I would go up, I would always stay with Mike at his place. And I'm like, dude, how do you deal with this 24 <laughs> hours a day? Like it's fun for a couple of days. And yep. then I'm like, that's this dude's reality every yeah. single day. I'm like coming from Dallas to this. I'm like, dude, yeah. it's sensory that's...
0: overload, man. Like, it's, Oh it's, man, it's, it's never quiet. <laughs> You're never alone. Never.
1: Uh, and then I remember, I remember when Carl like, first moved up there and I came to see him Cause he was, <laughs> he was a groom in my first wedding, really? uh, in my, in my first wedding <laughs> and like 96, him and his wife is split up. Both of them were in my wedding and they split up during the, like the weeks coming into my wedding. So they both were like, we hate to tell you this because <laughs> you know, you put us right. both as grooms and, and grooms ladies in the, in the wedding, but we're not together anymore. Oh, so we're like he door. was so a groomsman like,
0: and she was a bridesmaid. She was bridesmaid. Oh no!
1: So they both literally was like, "We got to tell you this because we just don't want to." Because I'd known them for so long, years before that, and just became really good friends with them. Right. And it was like, "What do you mean you guys are getting a divorce?" <laughs> I'm like, it's like first I was like, "Crap, that I'm sorry," and this is hella awkward now. Right, I'm like, right. But now you're gonna bring that mojo into my wedding? Right. He was like. <laughs> He was like, we're still going to do it, don't worry. And they were both, they both did it. And we still laugh about that when I talk to him sometimes. But yeah, yeah. Literally right after that, he packed his stuff up and he was gone. Wow. He bolted for New York, like, probably a couple of months after that. He packed his, uh, he, was, he was driving like a Ford Explorer then, the two-door. Yeah. Homeboy loaded it up and he was out. Man. Like, I looked up and I was like, yeah, he's like, I'm staying with a friend of ours that we knew that was living in Manhattan. Yeah. And. I went and visited him like in '97, I think '97 to '98, maybe '97. Yeah, '98. I don't even think at that point he was playing with Crash yet. Yeah, I he think he was still he just kind of really break
0: until like the early aughts, kind of right. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I went up there, and he was still. Yeah. Matter of fact, he wasn't. He was still touring at that time with uh, Harry Belafonte and doing like oh, okay. Blues Brothers gigs. Right. Right. And then playing just local gigs around town. And when I went not see him, crazy enough, I went and saw him at the, what is it, the Izzy Bar. Uh-huh. It was this underground club. I don't even know if Izzy Bar's still there, but it was underground club, and he was playing a showcase with Richard Bona for his first record. Wow. Richard was doing like a big showcase thing for a bunch of Capitol record execs that it came in town and wanted to see him, and I think it was, a, of course, some kind of uh, uh, pastorious thing. Some Jocko thing they had him sure, doing of yeah. course. Yeah. So they were like, Oh yeah, come see our new our new the future of bass and blah 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 But he was playing for that and I remember when I came and seen him and there was so this is like late 90s uh-huh. New York. Yeah. And that was my first time ever being there. And I remember when I got out of the train station, I was like the <laughs> same thing like you said, just sensory, just I was like, Oh my god, this is literally like it looks on TV. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah this is
0: this is crazy yeah and it looks it looks like it looks on tv but what tv doesn't capture is just like the the feeling of it (laughs) oh man it was so
1: intense just just like you said the noise level and i was like i never experienced anything like that in my life i was like this is this is i guess at that point i was not so much infatuated with it but it was extremely it kind of like you just wanna be there. Just all the lights and everything. You see This like Yeah. It's almost like just walking into uh, you know, a, a fantasy world for a yep. second. It's like, oh man, this is nuts. Yep. So you kinda of just want to trick everything out, but I'll never forget my first experience coming out of the train station was a dude just basically no more than two feet away from me, just decided, I'm just I gotta go to the bathroom. Right. So I'm gonna go right here.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was like Welcome to New York. Here yep. we are. <laughs> I'm yep. freaking down. I'm close to uh, coming right out of Penn Station. I'm like, here it is. Yeah, man. And that has kind of always been my thing. With like every time I come there, it's like, oh yeah, I love it. A few days later, I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> like this, this has been cool, but yeah, I I couldn't do this every day. Yeah,
0: I'm the same way. I'm I'm good for a few days, and then I got to get back to my house and my yard. <sighs> My car, <laughs> right <laughs> um, and just you know some, some quiet and some space some quiet yeah we talk about this all the time on the podcast about how like every musician kind of has to find a balance it doesn't it doesn't usually happen until we're a little older but we have to find a balance right we got to find a balance between the kind of scene we want to be a part of and yes. the, the kind of day-to-day life we want to lead <laughs> you know right, outside right, of music right. um so you know and and, like we've said, some people thrive on that New York energy or that l a energy, or yeah. whatever it is, but uh, other and
1: i and I and I get'cause that that's the energy that always gets me when I'm there, like now, if I could bottle that and bring that to Dallas, it'd just be
0: the i mean the most perfect mix ever, right, right, I get back to Atlanta just... and and uh you know no nobody's in a hurry right <laughs> around here, right, it's um. like. I look at that, and I'm
1: like, I get it, but it's like they never turn off. Right. And I guess that's the the balance for me, especially being here in, in Texas, is you have that time to just breathe, kind of detox for a minute. Sure, yeah, yeah. And it's like there I was like, yeah, I think that's the thing that I kind of discovered it just never shuts. nothing ever shuts off That's, that city is just going 24 mm-hmm. 7 365 mm-hmm. and if you're not uh, going was, with it it'll swallow you yes <laughs> and i was like when i the first time i went and saw carlock he was living in some he was standing in this guy's back bedroom in manhattan somewhere i can't remember where it was and i mean you know just a typical new york apartment so You walk in, a hallway goes all the way from the front to the back, and that's pretty much the whole spot.
2: Right. (laughs) And
1: Carlock's bed was, like, up up top in this little loft area. And I remember trying to go to sleep and hearing nothing but people screaming and cussing outside. (sighs) Just cars, sirens, fire trucks, everything. I'm, like, three or four o'clock in the morning. I'm, like, Keith is knocked out. (laughs) And I'm just laying there, like, you gotta be freaking kidding (laughs) me. Like, dude, this... This is not sleep music. <laughs> I'm laying, I'm just laying there looking at him like un believable This is this no is way, way for people to live. <laughs> right. I'm like, dude, how do you do this? Oh. So it's always been my thing. I, when I come there, I love it. It's fun. But yeah, after a couple of days, I'm, I'm out of there. Right, right. But if I had to do it, I could definitely do Jersey. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: If it was a thing that I wanted to do now, I would go there and I'd move the, to Jersey and just do the commute in and out and i would be totally fine with that yeah because to me that's kind of guys i know that live there to me that's their balance like jersey is normal right right go over to the other side it's like another world over there even though it's just right a uh, train way train way to ride it's just so different once you get away from the city then
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. you get out so i was like i could do that but at this point just financially and i would just be doing that just to do it yeah because yeah. half the time I would never be in New York
0: when you're home in Dallas do you yes do you work a lot or is that kind of your do. downtown downtime between uh, between two no I, I
1: do work a lot when I'm home there's been uh, some local stuff guys that I've worked with here for who she's probably close to 30 years mm-hmm people that I've worked here in this town that are actually still here and still active. Right. So I'm, I'm always busy. There's a, a Christian TV network thing that I've been doing now for the last, since 2012. Mm-hmm. But I've known a lot of those guys that done that show since probably the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do that three days a week when I'm home, me and Mark, uh, Letiri both play on that show. uh Daystar television network. Uh, we do that three days a week. All of us have church things that we play at. Yeah, every week on Sunday. So I've always had that. At one point, some churches I was doing it was Wednesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Wow! Because <laughs> I was rotating in and out of a couple of different churches. That would daystar, and I've always been in route with like the local bands. Top forty band in Dallas is that's pretty much. That's like a nine to five for a musician here. Right. There's I've, so I've, many, I've heard so many bands Dallas. here to do that. Oh yeah, it's, it's out of
0: control. Yeah. There, <laughs> and there's so in Dallas, there's a lot of work uh, for musicians with with those kind of bands. But it, what about right? Is I've, I've heard that kind of the it's it's an emphasis on that. There's not too much you know original stuff or jazz stuff. It's, no, it's very commercial. There's,
1: yeah, it's and it's gotten year by year it's gotten a lot more of that because there's just, I think a lot of people are starting to see they can just sprout up and have a a wedding band and use all these tracks and put together a four or five piece band and you can actually get out and get work pretty quickly. So over the years, it's gotten even more saturated with more of the top 40 corporate bands than the original or jazz stuff. Kind of back in the late 90s and early 2000s i was doing probably primarily more jazz gigs in top 40 uh-huh. because it was actually enough work going around with different bands and now if i work locally in clubs nine times out of ten it's probably with a wedding band right. that's pretty right. much i can't remember the last time i did a, a jazz gig that it wasn't like a monday or a tuesday either a, just a jam session Thing or just playing for the door And right. it's like on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday and that's pretty much it
0: I interviewed, do you know John Bryant? I know his name But I can't place the face for some reason He's uh, He teaches at uh, Southern Methodist um, And toured, oh, right. toured with Ray Charles For years and years Right, um, I know. I
1: know him when I if I see him, I know I'll, re- I'll remember his yeah, face. But I yeah. definitely know the name.
0: I interviewed him a few months ago, and and he was saying the same thing. Just it's it's a very kind of corporate commercial environment, yeah. and there's a good dollar to be made there, right? But that you know that doesn't uh, turn everybody's crank uh, creatively. <laughs> yeah, it'll
1: <laughs> it'll it'll kind of <laughs> it'll frustrate you really quickly yeah. playing playing in some of those bands because you know? it's. To me, there's there's no middle ground for a corporate band. It's either, <laughs> it's either a, a good corporate band or not. Right, right. And there is, to, in my opinion, there's nothing worse than having to play in a wedding band, and it's a bad wedding band. Yes. And yeah. not bad as in the guys can't play. It's more so just, for me, I've never been able to approach music any different way. Other than I have to give it everything I have, Mm -hmm. even if it's playing music like that, that I probably would never listen to. Mm -hmm. Don't like don't care for whatever. Right. If that's what I'm hired to do, then I have to play this stuff right.
0: Yeah. You take it seriously and you get it right right it's like
1: especially with that bands bands like that i'm like man the the least we can do is at least play this stuff right Mm -hmm. it's it's hard enough it's bad enough we got to play some of this stuff because it's just so horrible (laughs) so i'm like at least we can do is play the songs right and that's that's the most frustrating part is when guys just kind of show up and man they're they're phoning it in yeah way before they even get there yeah and trying to pull a a bass player or a rhythm section and everybody in the band is just kind of like yeah, you know what? We got here, gig starts at 7. I'm already at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock gig's over, so I'll see you at the end. Right. I'm like, no, man, we got to play these songs right. Yeah. It just takes, drains, whatever little bit of life you have in, you out. Right. Once they just start kind of doodling around with the songs, I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. And that actually started happening and drove me to working a 9 to 5. I started, I had done it once before, like for a couple of years, In the early 2000s, -hmm. but right around 2006, 2006, 2007, the RH Factor was kind of dipping off, and we weren't touring as much. Mm -hmm. And this, the corporate scene is just—it has just gotten too much. I just got tired of being in that situation with corporate bands, where guys were just like, "Yeah, let's just show up and play whatever." Mm I I went and worked a desk job for almost seven years. Really. What was the job? Like 2007, I worked at Dr Pepper at their their <laughs> headquarter. Their headquarters are here, in Dallas and Plano, Texas. Mm-hmm. And I I worked in the mailroom half that time, and then between the mailroom and being doc supervisor hmm. for their with their docs there, I did that for like seven years. and was still touring. I was touring with a, a bass player at that time too. Uh, up until he passed away, his name was uh, Wayman Tisdale. Oh, yeah. But Wayman was just kind of doing gigs here and there. And my boss was a member at the church that I was also playing at. So and kind of my supervisor on or her supervisor or somebody that worked with her was also in a band that I grew up playing with that guy when I was like 17 years old. He worked there as well. So she she already knew between us, two, She was like, I already know you guys are still playing. I know you know, you touring and you doing it in between. So she was letting me use vacation days and vacation days. I didn't even have technically. <laughs> right. So I was still able to tour on the weekends, but locally uh, it gave me the ability that, you know, whoever called for me to play, if I kind of took a look at that, that situation, it was like, well, I already know what that's going to be. Yeah. I'll, I'll stay home. Yeah. That's, it drove me to that point where I was like, I can't play music like this to the point where I was showing up, setting up my gear and by the time I got finished setting up my gear, because I knew the gig was going to be so horrible, I was already at, like, kind of looking at my watch like, yo, is this over yet? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. I can't play depressed.
0: <laughs> right, right. And the I'd reason rather, the reason it was that way, films. the reason it was that way, like you said, wasn't necessary. I mean, you know, the, that that music is what it is. It's pop music. Right. A lot of it's pretty bad, but that's not yeah. what got to you. What got to you is that the band wasn't good, and that your colleagues weren't yeah. taking it as seriously as you were. And it yep. just it goes it goes to show, man. No matter what genre you're talking about, no matter what kind of band you're talking about one of the things that makes it fun is that it's good. Right. (laughs) You know, right. Everybody has a good attitude. Everybody did their homework and plays their shit. Um, right. And, uh, you know, it, it reinforces something I've said. And I think uh, like a lot of musicians say is I would rather play in a really kick-ass corporate band than a shitty jazz band. Absolutely. Like, you know, absolutely. And, and with that, with that pop music thing, um, you know the 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 songs as a whole aren't great, but within them there's challenges. There's like interesting shit to yeah, stretch yeah. you and like you know getting into those drum parts, getting into whatever it is. Um, right, it's a, it's a different kind of skill than um, you know something you might do in RH Factor or Snarky Puppy or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, I've I've
1: always, uh, especially here as of lately, the more interviews and some of the clinic stuff I've been able to do, I have always, when people would ask me kind of my background. And just study-wise, I said, man, honestly, I used to kind of frown upon it because of running into just negative situations like that where guys were just kind of like whatever. I said, but even those situations, on top of the fact of playing in wedding bands, I never looked at it from a training kind of perspective mm-hmm. until I got older and didn't realize, like, yeah, a lot of the reason why I play the way I do is because of playing in bands like that because i've had to learn stylistically you have to be able to play everything from classic rock to jewish music yeah yeah (laughs) and wedding bands and everything in between and i've always kind of had the same attitude i'm like well if i'm playing this whoever's artist song it was i played that song as if i was playing with that artist Mm -hmm, yeah so i would learn those drum parts programmed or not mm-hmm. i would learn them verbatim right and if it was programmed stuff then i started learning how to try to make my kit sound like that even if it's just for that one song and from that i'm going to a rock song that started adjusting the way that i tuned my drums yep it, it affected everything the way i play the way i think the way i process music the way i learn music mm-hmm. all of that came when i started to look back at it i'm like all of that came from me playing in so many top top 40 bands
2: right Right.
1: It was like, I I actually am glad that I've been involved in that more than playing in jazz bands because Mm I, I had to learn everything and I had, and I actually enjoy that. Right. It was, it was fun for me to go, you know, do a wedding band and the typical first set is your dinner music set, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And you're playing all these big band charts. I love playing big band stuff when I was in college for a brief minute. So I love all that old music. Right. It was even even more challenging playing those songs to a
0: click track. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow. Big band to a click. OK, here we go. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, but, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed about playing, you know, pop and rock and top 40 and whatever is that it brought um, it brought more of a sort of an arc awareness to my jazz playing. Um, yeah, because, you know, pop songs, rock songs, uh, those kind of, uh, recordings are made so intentionally, right. They're yes. constructed from start to finish, just very intentionally. And in jazz, like it's, it's easy to just be in the moment, right. Just like right, kind of right. grab, grab whatever shiny thing, you know, catches yeah, your attention. Yeah. And that's cool. Like, you know, that's a, a different bag, but, um, just bringing you know, i i hate the term pop sensibility uh but but, <laughs> but
1: just right, bringing that right.
0: awareness and that accessibility and that sense of arc and that sense of like a coherent journey from start to finish um, right? really right. kind of infused into my into my jazz playing yeah it
1: um it started to help me with the quote unquote the the, the drum solos
0: yeah so i was uh, going to so ask important. you about that yeah but what were you going to say it was, uh, I started to
1: notice in some of the jazz bands, it's kind of funny here, I don't know if it happens anywhere else, but in Texas, they'll want a jazz band, but then they still want to dance.
3: Right, <laughs> people, people think they str- want
1: jazz, but they, what they right. want is not really. <laughs> right, I'm like, so, okay, how am I going to mix this together? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I would literally start taking just beats from different songs and construct those into quote unquote solos on some of these jazz bands I would play with. And I remember, I remember one time a guy telling me that I was playing with, we were playing, um, what was the standard we were playing? Uh, I can't remember the name of the song that we were playing, but we would always play it as a groove when I would play it with this just jazz group. He would always play it just like a regular groove, and just even within the song itself, we started noticing people. We were playing like an outdoor festival. People started getting up and started dancing.
3: hmm Yeah.
1: And I remember the guy turned around at me and laughing at me. He was like, I have never been able to play this song with any drummer, and people actually get up and start dancing with a jazz group. Right, right. I was like, I'm just trying to make it groove. Right. <laughs> and so when it when it came time for me to take my solo, I'm like, okay, now they're up dancing. I can't just go off the deep end and just like hey it's my time. Right. I'm I'm going to go into a bunch of crazy stuff that you have no idea what I'm doing and you're definitely not going to be able to dance to it. Yep. So I had to stick to my guns and make it a danceable jazz drum solo. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. just that kind of stuff came from taking solos they were always like why would you ask me to take a drum solo while the dance floor is full in these top 40 clubs I'm like you're trying to get stuff thrown at me <laughs> so it was like how am I gonna take a drum solo during this James Brown song and everybody's dancing right dance floor is packed and they're like Hey, the drummer, give the drummer. So I'm like, no, yeah. don't give me any. <laughs> I don't need any. <laughs> <laughs> and they would just, just every time I do that, I'm like, why do I say that? Because every time I say that, they start laughing and they leave the stage. I'm like, ah. Oh.
2: Right, right. So I'm
1: like, okay, I got to keep this dance floor a plaque. Yeah. Like, I can't empty out the dance floor. Yeah. I, I don't want to be that guy.
0: Nothing will so empty like, a dance floor faster than a selfish drum solo. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> the worst. <laughs> Um, so I was like, OK,
1: yeah, that that was a true tree training ground for me to learn. Like, OK, they want you to take a solo for whatever reason. Right. But you got to keep these people moving and grooving. So yeah. and, figure it out and wrap it up quick. <laughs> wrap, yes. That's the other. Yeah. <laughs> say what you got to say. in eight bars or less. Yep. yep. So like after that, you're going to be like, OK. This is not you know playing that funky music no more.
0: What yeah, happened? Yeah, <laughs> right. And to the average listener, like whether it's eight bars or you know four minutes, um, if it's if it's right. well if it's well constructed and well conceived, that you know they're just going to say, "God, he played that was an amazing drum solo." Oh my god! Yeah, exactly. They don't care how exactly. long it is. They just like, did you right. keep them dancing? Did you bring the energy? Did you you know all that? I was watching right. um uh, a couple of videos of you with with Snarky and um some solo stuff in particular and and I'm glad we're talking about this because your uh your soloing is is great. Um Thank you. Will. It's it's what you were talking about. It's kind of a blend of like you're using you're using kind of set pieces, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's I I don't get the impression that you're, you know, playing this stuff for the first time, like like Vinny or whatever, <laughs> you know, right, right, so right. It's, it's stuff that you've worked out kind of things, you know, you can turn to, but you're able to just like weave them together. It doesn't sound like lick one, lick two, lick three. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's probably a tough question. But how did you kind of develop that ability to walk the line between using, uh, you know, using non improvised content in an improvised way? Man, that
1: soloing with that band, and I guess not even so much with Snarky, just with jazz bands in particular. Um, For the most part, it's not so much that I'm coming from a preconceived idea Mm -hmm. uh, or stuff that I've never played before. It's always, for me, I've always been more interested in phrase-based I guess you could say solos.
2: Yeah,
1: I've never been one to just kind of like of any or someone like that that can just pull out, you know, just crazy rhythms and stuff just out of his head mm-hmm. and pretty much any minute or second of the song that he feels like it. Yeah, I've always kind of been motivated by whatever the song is doing. And I'll usually take my phrasing kind of, Form from whatever the song is doing. So if it's it's a song like um, typical songs that we kind of take drum solos on now from the new record, like uh, back is to the back.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that whole song to me drives that song is just just the groove of the whole song. Right. It's just a just a straight up almost just like a hip hop groove. Uh huh. So if I start soloing. Usually with that song, there's I usually just kind of find some angle that I you know can either offer the phrase that the band is playing, right, or either I just want to take a swing or more of a straight-ahead jazz over that mm-hmm. over that riff, or just take that riff itself and play it back at them. Right, it's almost like an echo. Just so many things that I'll do, but it's ninety nine, probably ninety nine percent based off of something within the song, some phrase or some rhythm that I'll take from the song itself, and then I go from there.
2: Right, right.
1: Every now and then, depending on like, uh, like, what about me? Because I get so bored because <laughs> we've played that song a thousand three times, mm-hmm. and that solo to me is such a burnout solo. It's at the end of the night, the song is long. It's up tempo, and then we got the big long drum and guitar solo in the middle of that. Right. So even for that section itself, too, I stopped being so much interactive as in trying to just go back and forth with the, whoever the guitarist is, and I would just start laying grooves up under him.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: and just different grooves. I <laughs> I remember a couple of nights I just started saying, "All right, I'm just start playing my favorite Led Zeppelin grooves right. on this song." So I just a couple of nights in a row, I just I was just playing different Zeppelin drum beats <laughs> un- under their solo and it was just hilarious because yeah. they would just look the guitarists would look at me and just start cracking up laughing i'm like dude i just i don't know what else to play at this point Right. <laughs> so i gotta do something to keep my but then we get to the drum solo and i remember distinctly at that point i'm like okay there's a couple of grooves in my head i know from like p-funk songs and kind of some James brown stuff that i'm literally i'm just gonna play those grooves as the solo and kind of interact to myself right. within those drum beats and i would do stuff like that right just to kind of in between because it's i've never like open drum solos like yeah. i always want to have some kind of musical something some happening framework under me. to play around yeah i'm it's the same like, way cast leave the stage and i'm like okay you just took my brain with me yeah. or with you guys like <laughs>
2: right, right.
1: Everybody leaves the stage and i'm like i don't know what to do i don't have those kind of chops to sit up here and just Kind of entertain you for the next two or three minutes by myself. Like, <laughs> this is going to be a very quick and boring drum solo if it's just me. Right, right. Like, and even the times that they've done that, I have to construct some kind of mini song in my head. Yeah. Like, when they've done that, because there's a couple of songs now that the arrangements have changed and they start some of them off with just an open drum solo. Mm-hmm. And the times that I've tried to cut those short, Mike is like, Keep playing. Like, (laughs) I don't know what else to play. (laughs) (laughs) Even at those points, I'm like, okay, he's basically giving me probably about 60 seconds, almost maybe two minutes up front of this song. Mm -hmm. I got to take this song from zero to getting into the groove of this song. How am I going to do that?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And at that point, I would start, you know, just making up songs that kind of go with that groove. And I would just slowly build that into the song. And so it's always got to be some kind of phrase or pattern or something like that to help me kind of get my, I guess, your mojo going or something like that. Right, right. Vinny, that like, yeah. I see guys like Vinny and some other guys when they just, guys that play like that and have that kind of create, and they can just sit down in a drum kit and just, you know, just put their go. foot on the gas and go. Yeah, That, yeah. it freaking amazes me when mm-hmm. I see cats that can do that. I'm like, where do you pull that from? Like, yeah. What in your head? You were just having a conversation, yeah, talking to somebody, and you just go to a kid and just go. Rah! I'm like, how do you, how do you even get there? Like, yeah. man, I'm, I'm like an old car. I got to warm up for a little while. You got to, me too. Kind of, kind of pump the gas pedal for a little while and get the gas going. Right, like, right. I can't. Then you that. turn like, the
0: AC on. <laughs> right, right.
1: Leave everything off. Like I got to get going for a second, but man, it's guys. I know that can do that. I'm just like, that's just a gift. Right. I've, I've tried to do that. And I think the times that I've done it, I could tell it was just so forced mm-hmm. and I wasn't comfortable. I wasn't relaxed. I was like, yeah, I can't, this is just not, not the way I play. So I was like, I got to start figuring out at that point, I guess is when you kind of start discovering who you are as a player. Yeah. Like, I'm like, okay, I got to figure out how to make this work for me. Right. Right. And figure out how, you know, how I'm gonna fit in. Thankfully, i've always been putting a lot of good situations behind other monster drummers like that's i met keith because of the wedding band stuff Mm -hmm. yeah we met at a random festival i was playing with one band he was playing with another band like in 94 yeah and we both linked up at that festival i was like man you're freaking amazing right he was like you're freaking amazing you'd be (laughs) great i need to for this band
0: and you would be perfect yeah i'm like
1: okay great call me
0: and this that's how it started Keith is another one of those drummers who, who like you, like you can, you can see the set pieces in his playing. But oh, he's able—he's yeah. able to just flow from idea to idea, you know. And and yes. most of his ideas are ideas that he's had before. Like you see it show right. up in yeah. different different you know things that he plays. Um, right. But the like the way he's able to kind of execute those ideas in the moment and make it unique to that song or unique to oh, that man, it's moment is crazy. You're and and that's the same way you are. And I'm glad you talked about like taking something from the song. Um, right, because if you take if you take a rhythmic phrase or a melodic movement from the song, like there's a bunch of different ways you can express that, but right. but you're not putting the pressure on yourself to just like create something out of whole cloth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you start you you have like a little you have a little starter piece that you can you can just start yourself off with. You know, absolutely,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's definitely definitely my my approach if um, if I have an approach to say something about it is. Give me something rhythmically or something within the song a phrase, let me build off of that and I'm I'm good. Right, right. Open solo, nah.
0: don't be a short solo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that playing with Kevin Scott changed my playing, absolutely for the better. Um, yeah. Did yeah. you did you have the same experience? Absolutely. There are there are
1: guys that I know. Um, kind of piggybacking off of the uh previous talk when we was talking about bad kinda of not so much bad musicians as they can't play, but just ones that just don't take their parts seriously. Right. That that has also affected me as a drummer too, to figure out, okay, if those guys are not gonna play the bass lines right, I have to alter what I'm playing on the drums because I'm playing the original drum beat that goes along with that bass line. Right. And then there was other times where you would play with bass players, where you just kind of look at them, and it was almost like if a, if a drummer and a bass player, just instruments wise, could be married, it'd be like, "I'll marry you." <laughs> <laughs> it's just like there's yeah. nothing, there's no way to describe when you play with musicians, especially as drummers with bass players. Right. When they just give you that space, but they also give you that that support mm-hmm. to what you're playing that it almost takes it just takes all the work out of what you're doing. Yeah. And you really get to enjoy the song and the groove and the feel and it's just everything you play and everything they play, it just works. Yeah. It just makes it so much fun to play like
0: that. Yeah. And, and Kevin, Kevin, Kevin plays, is
1: one of those guys. He
0: plays with so much conviction that yes. you you can't help but um just enjoy it and and go along with it like it's almost hard right. to it's almost hard to sound bad and feel bad playing right. that strong a player you know he
1: he digs in deep
0: yeah yeah
1: his whole approach his tone his feel just the way he plays is it's you gotta you know kind of put both feet on the gas and yeah. play with him because he's he's not gonna mess around right he's not gonna no tentative bone in his body right <laughs> like he just if you're going to play with him then you got to play
0: yeah Yeah, he just kind of—he's going to make you
1: play, or he's going to make it hard for you because he's not going to back off.
0: Exactly, and 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 bringing bringing your A game—I'll just speak for myself. Like bringing my A game had to do with every aspect of my playing because if I didn't know the song as well as Kevin, I'd be fucked. If I didn't (laughs) play—if I didn't play as confidently and as clearly as Kevin, I'd be fucked. If I, uh, you know, if I didn't know kind of the the history of whatever this song was or whatever, like I'd be fucked. Right. Um, Right. So. So being in in different situations with him, like I knew I had to bring it. And I mean, if I didn't if I didn't play as loud as him, I'd be fucked. Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) not not that Kevin plays too loud, but like it's louder than I got
1: a very he's
0: got a big presence.
1: Yes. when he plays
0: it's a very full
1: big sound when he plays and it's not overbearing because
0: he doesn't play real notey stuff but it's just no like it's up in the mix yeah that's Um, that's that that beautiful
1: balance of of space but also support
0: yes yeah
1: he he leaves you enough space to do what you do but he also supports you when you're doing your other thing too so it just it was such a seamless uh, transition Kevin came in from the first gig. He was like, "All right, let's go." Yep. yep.
0: <laughs> I, got a, song? Uh, I got a. I got slight... I was like, "Oh yeah, we're we're fine. This is, <laughs> this this is yep no problem at all." <laughs> yep. Yep. I got a slight hazing from Kevin on on one of our first gigs. Uh, oh I, when, wow! When I first moved to town, like I, I was playing with Atlanta Funk Society, and you know, oh, so yeah, yeah. Kevin yeah. Kevin was set up right next to me. You know, his bass amps right there by my hi hat. And, and it was loud. Like it it was, it was loud. So I, after sound check, uh, I turned to him, I was like, Hey man, could you, could you just turn down a little bit? And he said, sure. And he turned towards his bass amp and then he turned back to me and he said, or you could just play louder. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, all right, I I'll take that. Right. Right. But that's, that's an example of like, you, you know, you better bring it the way Kevin brings it. Um, So uh, Yeah I mean Kev came in It
1: wasn't the typical You know Oh it's gonna take a few gigs Blah 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 It was from the first show Kev came in like Yeah This is This is my band too Mm -hmm. Yeah (laughs) It was It was that confidence And that authority Yes from, From the stuff he was playing Even if it wasn't the the correct baseline that boy because we th- we threw a ton of music at him right at the same time too so we knew some stuff he was gonna but it's just gonna take time to learn that much stuff right but even on the stuff that he may not have been playing quote-unquote verbatim didn't matter because whatever he did play it
0: was with such conviction it worked kevin is a great example of i i, I think we can all take a lesson from this he like whenever he shows up to a gig He's like, I think his mentality is, you called me for a reason, and right. I'm going to play every minute that's, reminding yeah. you what that reason is. That's what I'm going to do. You yeah. hire me to do me, and yep. that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes. Guys like that make it very, very easy. Yeah. It yeah. just it takes all the stress away, and that situation was becoming stressful at first because we knew to, to come in— And not just replace Mike, but it was also just you're coming in and it's the bass chair. Mm -hmm. And it's like a lot of these songs Mike either co-wrote or had, you know, so it's just coming in and taking the bass spot was not like just coming and playing a regular bass, you know, just just a bass chair in another band. Right. It's a very integral piece because the way we write with that band, everything is very specific.
0: Right, and everybody and stuff so everybody in that band has to have a voice. Right. You know, and, and Kevin's job wasn't to come in and just parrot the voice that came before him on bass. Exactly. It was to bring his voice. Bring his voice. You know? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Cause we would know we were like, Yeah, we don't
1: need just a replacement. We're we're looking for another voice in this band. Yeah. And all four pieces are very important. Mm-hmm. It can't just be Oh, I just play no. Nah. <laughs> yeah. So when he came in and he started playing, we we all just kind of looked at each other. Just It was just a huge sigh of relief. Because, I mean, Henry knew because Henry had seen him in New York playing with Wayne. Mm-hmm. So he already knew about the kind of player he was because it's the same thing with Wayne. You can't be a tentative, not confident dude and play with Wayne Krantz. It right. will not work. Right. So we already knew, well, you're doing that gig on a regular, so we know you're going to play. yeah. Yeah, You're going to show up and you're going to play. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, when he showed up for that first tour, we were like just a big sigh of relief. Like this is going to not just work, but it's pretty much was the way it was supposed to go.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And it's been that way ever since not in, not just his bass playing either, just his personality.
2: Right. Right. Just
1: a great, just a great dude. Epic hang. So yeah. (laughs) So I was like, man, I was like, just, that beautiful situation where it's like, yeah, man, he fit perfectly. Yeah. It was just a perfect fit. If he hadn't been able to fit in or if it wouldn't work, if he couldn't work it out with his schedule and do the shows that he's been able to do and become a member, it it would have got interesting for us because that, that list is short of, mm-hmm. of guys like that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just a short list. And most times when you find guys like that, yeah, they're like everybody else. Those guys are being called by everybody. Right. Right. And that we had a list of guys like him that was already working with a bunch of people. We were like, how is this about to work? Are we going to have a, a revolving bass player chair?
2: Yeah.
1: And, it's and we had toyed it. That means like, yo, if that's what it's got to be, with the list that we had, we were like, if all these guys can do it, then we'll, we'll deal with it. Because we know if they're on a rotation, it's not going to matter. Because when they show up, you'll never know that they hadn't played with us in six months. Right, right. So...
0: But and it's, the kind, of the, it's he, kind of the snarky model where, like, they it's it's kind of a rotating right. cast in a bunch of different chairs, and it'll always right. be snarky, but, like, what it is on a given night or on a given tour is a little more fluid. Um, right. And they, I, you know, they use that to their advantage, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, but I know, I know me and Henry and some of the guys, we were like, we definitely really don't want to do that because we wanted for it to be a four piece group right. of four voices being together. And especially with the style that, Uh, Kevin plays even with the coming in, being able to mess with all the pedals and Mm -hmm. just all the crazy effects. He was totally into that. We were like, Great. Yeah. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. works perfectly. Thank you. But if you can be even weirder, (laughs) go right ahead. And when Henry Kevin Henry kinda hit him with that (laughs) right. Like Henry hit him with that and he was like, Oh, you wanna get weird? Right. Okay. Yeah. Showed up to the next gig with a couple of more pedals and he just started coming up with some sounds. He was like, oh, yeah, this couldn't have worked out any better if we, you know, just a dream fit. Easy transition. His voice, to me in that band, that's a perfect vehicle for him. Yeah. I yeah. think with the way that he plays and the sonic stuff that he comes up with, he gets to do all that with us. Right. So right. I think it's like a, a beautiful combination. You know, with Wayne, that's definitely a role. The way you have to play with Wayne As a drummer and a bass player with Wayne You kind of have to fit that kind of mold That's kind of been there for a minute And that's kind of what you do mm-hmm. With Wayne And no knocking that Because he was telling me I, like, I want to get you on the swingies I'm like no <laughs> Absolutely not dude I, I'm sorry but I, I know when to say some something's over my head And that gig i just no I would be so <laughs> uncomfortable playing with that gig You think? Oh man, absolutely! That mm. gig is so intense. Yeah, it's just it's built off of like you were saying with Keith and guys and like Zach Danziger and all those guys that play with him. Those guys can just sit at a kit and put their foot on the gas and go. Right. And you got to do that with Wayne. Mm-hmm. From the first beat of the first song with Wayne, he is all in. Yep. Yep. And it's it's not just you know give me a
0: backbeat. <laughs> right. It's, and it's like show me dude, show me how, your brain and your soul and everything right now <laughs> right right now and we're gonna stay at this level for the next two hours <laughs> <laughs> like you can't this
1: this is where we're starting right right oh man we nuts. got another hour and a half of this yeah <laughs> like yeah I told Kevin and I just I finally got the chance to go see them Wayne live finally after all these years right never got to see him live when, when anybody else was playing with him so just happened a couple of weeks ago we were in New York and he was playing with Wayne on Thursday, and uh, Cliff Allman was playing with him. Okay, yeah. So it was Cliff and Kevin at 55 bar. I'm sitting back there, and I'm just my head nodding the whole time. I'm looking at Kevin. I'm like, no way. <laughs> I just kept, I kept mouthing to him like, nope. <laughs> he's like, oh man, I finally get to introduce you to Wayne. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm gonna come introduce because I want to meet him because yeah. uh, he's a hero and I love his work and just everybody who's played with him is a hero of mine too, musician-wise. I'm like. But no, I would never sub that gig. Right. It's like, so right. for me to do that, I would have to come up and do a couple of rehearsals with Wayne. Yeah. And see how that would work because yeah. I would be intimidated as all get out to just show up and
0: play that gig. I'd be scared out of my mind. Oh, me too. Me too. And it's it like his his um you know composition process and just the whole way he approaches a song, whether it's writing it or performing it, it's this like as I understand it, this weird mix of like there's some kind of set ideas. Um, it's you know. It's I think you would actually do great in that band because the way he constructs a song is the way you construct a solo. Like, there, oh, right. there are right. some set ideas together. that you can turn to. How we get there right. is kind of up to interpretation or, or the moment yes. or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think Ke- like I know when Kevin started playing with him, he spent a lot of time in the shed just learning the language and the process. And,
1: right, because it know. is something something different. Yeah, there was. So it was for me to see Kevin do that gig, where I only know of him from playing with us. So I know that side of him, mm-hmm. all the groove stuff, all the crazy sound stuff, and you know the soloing stuff. And then I went and saw him do that gig, and I just looked at him. I was like, people really need to come see you play with this dude, cause yeah. they're coming to see you play with Fork. That's a that's a side of you. I said, but dude, <laughs> you were you were you and Cliff. I was like, man, that was crazy to see y'all do that yeah. for two hours that night. Right, like, that was you guys never let the hell up. I'm yeah. like, and he's that's
0: done that. A, he's done that gig with a bunch of drummers. He's done it with with right. Cliff and Zach Danziger and mm-hmm. um, uh, Josh Dion. Josh, done yeah, right, and yeah. Nate, uh, Nate. Nate Smith has done it. Yeah, Nate. Uh, Nate and Nate
1: Woods. Yes,
0: yeah, just crazy, so, crazy.
1: Yeah, he's. I think that's why he started getting the idea of like trying to throw me in the mix. I'm like, no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> I'm like, Cliff is fine. I'm yeah, like they, the all, they got it Cliff. covered. <laughs> like I had seen Cliff play a lot of times, but when you see him play on a kick like that, and it's like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. like Cliff was was you you know, club and hammers in in hands hands hammers in in feet feet, was was just, mean, I mean, him and Kev was was like, like. All right, Wayne. Let's go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what yeah. you got, dude? Right. <laughs> That's it. Like, We're still here, man. So um, I was like, yeah, he's he's a special dude, man. So it's 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 truly an honor to to, to get to play with him in this in this group. Mm-hmm. It's a really beautiful thing now that we've been playing together for as long. and He's been in the band now since 2015, and that the new record is finally coming out in October. Where it's just it's him.
3: Mm-hmm. It's
1: yeah. him on the record. Is him in the arrangements on a lot of the songs, a song, the song that he wrote, and you're actually finally getting to hear his voice in in the group.
0: Right, that's and coming not out so in October. Comes out in October, and you'll you'll be touring like kind of before and after that, right?
1: Yeah, we just did a run in August, and we're doing a European tour starting in October. We start October fifteenth, cool, and go through November fifth in Europe. Nice. And, like, the second week of that tour, we're actually opening for the first week of Snarky Puppy's European tour. Oh, cool. It's like the—we're doing five of those shows, uh, the 22nd through the 27th. So I'll be pulling Double Duty that week. Man, nice. So it'll be fun. But it's been fun, man, because we've been playing most of the—not most of it, but probably, like, three or four songs from the new record. And that's all Kev. Yeah. That's— you know that's him on the record so he's playing his parts cool cool so that's that's been cool to get to play this new stuff and people are finally getting to hear him
0: this episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com the niche marketplace where drummers drum retailers and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear list your drums for sale for free and the only fee is 4% if it sells simple check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. Before we wrap up here, I just wanted to ask you, uh, we're, we're a year, give or take, on from uh, from the passing of Roy Hargrove. Yeah. Um, how how long did you play with him, and when was the last time you played with him, and and what are some of the pieces of, of his legacy that you had time to kind of reflect on since his death?
1: Oh, man. Groves,
0: um, I met Grove
1: back in like the late 90s, the late 90s, him and Keith Anderson, uh, saxophone player that was in R.E. Tractor for so many years, oh, from, from since the beginning. I played with Keith here in Dallas. Me and Bobby Sparks, Ty Parsonale, uh, all played in Keith's band here in Dallas. Roy would always come home uh, in between those tours during those years. He had been talking to Bobby and Keith forever about he wanted to do like more of a funk and hip-hop record. we mm-hmm. have been talking to him for years about doing saying I've been writing all these songs, and we would record stuff at Bobby's house sometimes. Uh, so he, Bobby kept telling him, like, man, this next time you come home, or during Christmas or whatever, just come over to the house and we'll record. And sometime around the fall of, like, 2000, that's when we did the initial demo for hard groove,
3: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of those songs that are on hard groove, we recorded on the demo to submit to the record company at that time, back in 2000, at Bobby's house, and we even actually did a couple of test run gigs with like some different members, like all Dallas guys. Yeah, and mainly it was all Keats band at that point was playing was the R.H. Factor technically, and I did a few gigs and uh, like dallas and austin just to see how it would feel live back during that time and then we actually thought it was never going to happen hmm. it was like a year and a half almost two years went by hadn't heard anything from the record company i hadn't heard anything from grove or management or keith or anything i was just like well that, that's never going to work so i guess we just have those memories of doing the demos so we'll have the demo but when they called us back to actually come and do the record at electric lady that was my I can't say it was my first experience in the studio, but that was my first time doing a record of on that level mm-hmm. for me was doing that recording with him. And then, you know, pulling up to Electric Lady itself was something that I'll never forget. Just walking up to that door and standing there going, I'm actually about to walk in here yeah. and I'm about to record in this studio. This <laughs> is it's pretty nuts. Yeah. And then with Groves, he's always had this approach with me. He always would program certain beats or have certain beats in his head, but he always allowed me the freedom of basically taking that and either playing what it is or change it up and do what I hear with it. Mm -hmm. He was just like, he would always give me direction, but it was always a very large kind of window of how far I could take it mm-hmm. and you know, do what I want to do with it. So he was always kinda of with me, just just play would always just oh man, just play. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm like, Yeah, but what do you want me to play? Yeah. Oh, you know, you you hear it. Yeah. I'm yeah. Like, Huh? <laughs> so he he helped me definitely, especially in the studio, because I, you know, never been in a studio situation like that prior to that. I'd done local records and stuff around Dallas, but nothing on that level. And especially with what we were doing at that point in time, I don't know if anybody else had really done a record kind of like what we were attempting to do. Right. So I'm like, in this record, and I'm like, I got to play these grooves, even though we did the demo, we were doing some of the same songs. Yeah that
0: pressure when we got there I was like okay this is the real deal right but he was he but, was kind of like challenging you and trusting you to to right. listen to your instincts and lean into them and just yeah. like you said just play just play so he
1: helped me stay really relaxed and also not be afraid you know don't let that fear creep in he's like just play do what you do yeah. you've already done some of these songs anyway we're just going to record them again, basically. Right. So let's just play them again. So he helped me a lot with just being calm and just it helped the fact that he was kind of one of those band leaders where he wasn't, you know, the taskmaster, mm-hmm. you know, tight. He's not one of those that would just micromanage every single thing that you played and you had to play it exactly like that or, you know, he couldn't stand it right. <laughs> to the point he was almost too lenient. It <laughs> be a lot of times we'd be like, all right, that sounded great. I'm like, uh, can I actually go back and fix like eight bars of that? like oh no it sounded great I'm like but i literally played the wrong thing <laughs> oh no it was, it was fine I'm like no grove i really want to go back and fix that man because i don't want that to go to the record yeah. oh, no, it's perfect you'll be fine i'm like wow oh. so he also <laughs> in an indirect way taught me how to you better get it right in the first one or two takes because mm. i'm seeing now grove is not the one to be doing three four and five right you know if it gets if it gets to number three you've pushed him to the limit Mm, if you hadn't gotten it in the first three takes it ain't happening but most likely if you're not on the first one or two takes you're done he's not going back right he'll never go back to it it's on to the next song so he kind of showed me that too like whenever you play play with conviction and kind of see the whole song and completion in your head so when you're playing it you're kind of already thinking two or three or four or five eight bars ahead so you're just you know going from section to section and you're not thinking so much just play right play the song down play what you want to hear play what you feel and be strong in that so when you hear the playback you're not oh man i need to go ahead and do another take because i'll be in there all i'll be in the studio all day yeah me too Yeah, one more take right they always tease me with local sessions right here like like, yeah, we know we gotta stop you because especially, you know, that I had to stop because we were recording all those records to tape. Mm-hmm. with uh Russell Lovato. He was on two inch tape, so you couldn't just keep doing multiple takes anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But man, with pro two sessions, I would I'm I'm <laughs> very yeah. horrible about like, okay, yeah, give me one more. Right. Give me one
0: more. Give, give me one more uh, on that on that beat three and four right there. Right. It's like, ah, uh, one more. I'm good. All yeah. right. Uh get surgical you know, with it. Two so two songs later. Can I go back and
1: listen to that first song again? And oh, yeah, let me man. do another one. Yeah. It's, I'm I'm horrible because I'm just I think so much about every single thing. Everything I play has just gotta be.
0: And the worst part, the more you keep listening to the back then you're like, Oh, I should have played this or I should have played yeah. that. Yeah, Yeah. And, and if, if you're in a bad place, like I've experienced the same thing in the studio, where if if you're not in a good frame of mind, you're you're projecting forward about every single thing you play. Yeah, like you you play something, and even if it wasn't bad, you're like, can can I live with that in right. in, in the ether forever? forever right Right. like is somebody somebody gonna listen to that in two years and be like oh that wasn't a great day for exactly that's me to a t yeah and it's god it's a bad place to be right
1: he Um, he was pretty i guess instrumental early development during those sessions where he was like dude just get out of your head yeah Yeah. let's just play these songs let's just play them down he he kept me cool in that aspect and when i go back and i listen to those records now I'm like, yeah, I'm glad he stopped me (laughs) and just let it be what it was. And then when I go back and listen to it now, I'm like, yeah, it wasn't that bad at all.
0: (laughs) I think Jocko Jocko did the same thing for Peter Erskine when they were in. Report, And this is this is at the front of my mind right now, because our, our last interview was Todd Zuckerman. And oh yeah, yeah, He he referenced uh, Peter Erskine's uh, recent book, uh, No Beethoven, which is kind of his his memoir. And in that oh, book, oh man, I gotta get that. Yeah, okay. it's a kick-ass book. It kind of centers around Peter's time with with Weather Report, but it's kind of a, a awesome. memoir of his whole career. Um, but in that book, he talks about like when he first joined Weather Report, he was really in his head, and Zavanul wow. had him second guessing everything. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. Yes, and Jocko told him, "Don't think." concentrate exactly it's and, so
1: crazy how different that is yeah
0: yeah they're very different states of mind right um, and so yeah, it, sounds, Grove, it sounds like yeah Har- Hargrove kind of put you in that concentrate frame of mind rather right. than the think <laughs> right because he was he was Gro-
1: Grove was I don't think he meant to do it to the to the band you know on purpose but he liked to move really quick hmm. and I think that may come more so from doing more straight ahead stuff because doing straight ahead jazz, if you start doing with multiple takes, they're literally different tunes yeah. every take because you're not gonna play the same thing twice. Right. In that kind of setting. So a lot of those guys had gotten to that point where they just, you know, they play it one or two times and that was it. They were mm-hmm. on to the next. Yep. And he kinda had that same flow even with the hip hop stuff. He was like, you play it down a couple of times, oh we good. Right. Next song. Right coming from more of the funk background and playing corporate stuff where you can just, just every single bar of every single, it's like, yeah, you can just do that to those kind of songs Mm -hmm. because it's so repetitive. Right. So going back and doing multiple takes is not uncommon because you're playing the same thing over and over and over. You're just trying to make it sound perfect. Yeah. So he, he was definitely a big, you know, influence and help with, you know, that confidence in me. And just like you said, Get out of your head. and Just concentrate. Yeah, concentrate on the music. Get out of your head.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And once at that point, I was like, okay, I know this song. And when once we started doing that, when we started recording, I remember just recording those songs. We literally the hard groove is a lot of first and you know two take songs, mm-hmm. and we were just going through them. Yeah, even the songs that we kind of came up with at the studio that we hadn't done prior to that, we'd run through them a couple of times. And we look at Russ like, yo, hit record, let's go.
2: Right, right.
1: And I don't, <laughs> I haven't been in a, a situation where it's been that kind of loose since then. Mm-hmm. Which is really crazy with a band like that because that band was so big and it was so many pieces to that. But the overall vibe of it because of Grove is so relaxed. Right, right. Because he was never, he was never stressed out about anything. Sure. <clears throat> if you kind of played something that was wrong, he would be like, you know, hey, let's go back and let's grab that. And just but his overall attitude about it just kept everybody so calm. Yeah. And he never just made you freak out like you said. Right. Like <laughs> like Peter was saying, he would never have you second guessing stuff like that.
0: Right. It's amazing he was, how like every every band is just from the top down. Right. Like, you know, the band the band takes on the personality of the leader. Right. You know. And and we did. That the whole
1: vibe of that band was definitely Grove. Yeah. Grove's whole attitude was, his whole personality was everybody sees the jazz side of him, but I'm like, Grove grew up in Waco in Dallas, Texas. What he first heard as a child was not jazz. He right. grew up listening to rhythm and blues, gospel, yeah, and soul music, and and especially once in his teen years, that's in the 80s, you know, the, the 80s hip-hop stuff. And he sure. was a walking encyclopedia of music.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: If I still wish during that time, <laughs> those all them random times when he would just start quoting off songs from the lyrics, right, to the horn parts, to the bass lines, right. to the guitar hook, though, parts, whatever it was, he just knew so many freaking songs: jazz, R and B, country, rap, <laughs> rock songs. I was like, dude, where do you find the time? to one listen to all this music because you're playing so much right but you've absorbed it to the much where you know these songs inside and out yeah like you could sit at a piano or whatever and play them you know all the lyrics mm-hmm. you can sing all this stuff so you've memorized all this stuff right and so i was like where do you he was like you're just a walking piece of music you're right. just art
0: in human form yeah some some people so are like that man their they're, yeah. their brain is just a hard drive and, and right it comes in contact with something once and it's like i got it <coughs> right and it's like you get
1: around a guy like
0: that in a band
1: when he formed the rh factor it was kind of to release that other side of him that was just dormant all right, those years in right. the jazz quintet stuff like like yes i love jazz i've learned that and i've played that and i love to play it but I have all this other stuff in me that I got to get out. Mm-hmm. And right. that was the RH. So we would always, uh, all the members would always say that it was never a quote-unquote a band per se. It was literally a family mm. because everybody was connected beyond the music. All right. of our personalities just kind of fit together. We all listened to the same stuff. We all loved the same stuff. Half the time, you know, if we weren't playing our own songs, we were all like a big band, like a big jukebox. Right. <laughs> Everybody was just start somebody would just start humming some bass line from some other song and if it was enough of us standing around, they take one part, I take one part, we start singing harmony stuff. And it was just that was just the vibe everywhere yeah. we went. Yeah. From day one of that band until I think the last time I played with Grove was what did we do recently? Right before he passed. Um, it might have been Detroit Jazz Festival it might have been that like 2015 2016 mm-hmm. no it was 2000 right how could I forget it was 2018 I believe in September we did the uh, Blue Notes Okay, yeah. we were supposed to do the Blue Note Jazz Festival that year and it got cancelled uh, that was the same year that um uh, my man passed Stevie Dan Walter oh yeah yeah and uh, Stevie Dan was supposed to head the festival in Tokyo that year and they said um, uh, my man got sick um, piano player uh, Donald Fagan the, Donald yeah yeah They said Don Don was sick and we all kind of kind of pictured that he was still having a rough time dealing with that Right. So we, they kind of take the whole festival behind that because I think a lot of the financial side and everything was kind of hooked on them being the the featured act that, that year. So we got to Tokyo, had the day off, but then we still had to do Nagoya for two days, which we hadn't did. We had did Nagoya probably since the first time we did the Blue Notes like in two thousand three. Mm-hmm. So we did Nagoya for two nights, and then we came back and did Tokyo Blue Note. Uh, For three nights. And that was the last shows that we did with Grove. And thankfully, my wife was there on Mm -hmm. that trip. I brought her out on that trip and she recorded a lot of it, took a bunch of pictures. Cool. So we've all kind of had those memories to share from that night. Yeah. That we we still we're still trying to figure out how to put that in a, a nice video collage and kind of release that one day. We got to go through all of the stuff that she got. And other people got that was there at the club that night. That's told right. us since he passed. They were like, "Yeah, I was there that night, and I have pictures." And so we're still trying to put all that together. But yeah, that was the last time it was 2018. That's cool. And that was a trip because that trip, when we did that, like a couple of weeks before we left, our bass player from the original bass player was Reggie Washington when we started, and then Lenny Stallworth started playing bass with us in 2005. Lenny went to the hospital right before we did Japan and mm-hmm. we ended up having to get Reggie to come back. That was his first time coming back to the bend since he left in 2005. Lenny went to the hospital right before then found out he had a cancerous tumor. Ugh. Lenny passed away in it was either late November, or early December of that year, 2018. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a year later, Grove Passes away in November Almost a couple of weeks Of shy of each other Yeah Of man. when Lenny passed So it was back to back Blows for us Right right. Those two years So Glad we got to do it And I think I'm pretty sure Blue Note probably Videoed those shows I'm right. pretty sure Because they normally do So Well My lasting, last impression Of Grove <clears throat> it was the same thing I'm um, I swear my wife Has got pictures of this Groves outfits with the, with the RH factor are, are pretty legendary. Yeah. <laughs> some of the stuff that he's worn on stage is people that see him with, you know, the typical Brick brothers suit, you know, real classic, traditional jazz vibe right. and they see us, you know, with us. And he's got on like a pink jacket or something and some jeans and some converse that are like, that look like a, A tiger and got like a tail hanging off the back end of the shoes (laughs) just some crazy stuff that he's worn and he pulled out one of them crazy outfits that night when we were in Tokyo I gotta find those pictures when my wife took it but it was the same thing it it never changed even though his health has been kind of up and down over the last few years of us playing Mm -hmm. when we got together it was just like we had been from day one yeah it was just a big family getting together and playing some music and having fun
2: right right
1: it was just it was never any stress it was never any you know just overthinking we just get on stage and just have a ball
0: yeah yeah and And i see that in your playing still like it's it's uh you know his his influence um Seems to have, have taken hold in you. Oh, because absolutely, absolutely. You're, you're just you're playing with, with a ton of confidence and a ton of just beautiful flow and right and uh it's really it's really great to see in here, man. Yeah, thanks so
1: much, man. That's that's some good good years. It's <clears throat> that was God. Yeah, we started touring in two thousand three. Yeah. That was my my playground per se. Yeah, right, right. And it it wasn't your typical yeah, I
0: got to go to work and play these play these parts. Mm-hmm. It was just oh, we're gonna go out on stage and have a ball, right? And that with was all you. I think we've we've all had a gig like usually kind of early in our career that that taught us a lot about what kind of musician we are, right? You know, like when you're working for right. someone or when you're playing with people who who you know consciously or not just like bring out the best in you, yeah. And kind of put you in touch with your most honest playing, um, right? And it sounds like Roy did that for you. Absolutely. Yeah, cool, Absolutely. Man. Well, thanks so much for talking with me, man.
1: Man, you're welcome, man. Um, My pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. I'm sorry we didn't get to talk too much drum stuff.
0: Well, it's, <laughs> it's all good. There are, there are plenty of podcasts uh, doing a great job of, of covering the drum stuff, right, and, and we right. try to focus on, on more of the life stuff. Beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Need, need more of that. Thanks again to JT for that talk. Be on the lookout for him this fall with Snarky Puppy and Fork. Once again, go to patreon.com slash working drummer to help support us. There's new exclusive content there for our patrons with more coming soon. Next week, Matt Krause will be bringing you his interview with Jerry Marotta. He interviewed Rick a couple months ago, so it'll be great to hear from the other half of those legendary drumming brothers. Hope you check that out, and thanks for listening. Cheers.